Amen. We appreciate Lynn jumping in and leading us. And of course, our Vacation Bible School leaders as well. We are blessed at Lawndale to be able to train the next generation. We have a group of young people that are coming along that we know will be leaders one day. And this past week, we were able to spend a whole week, 9 to 12, just training them, teaching them, and of course, having a lot of fun. I hope you have some fun at your house when you're with your kids as well. And I think that's important that the kids are able to enjoy being here. As a matter of fact, one of the things my wife and I do, we do on our way to meet with you on Sundays, is we pray for you and we pray for ourselves that we'll worship well, that we'll have a good offering to God as we meet and that we'll encourage one another. And we pray for our kids and our grandkids. And one of the things that I pray often, uh, God help, help my grandkids just enjoy being at church today. They're all young. We want them to enjoy being there. We, we want them to learn. And they're being discipled when they're there. And they're being discipled when they're uh, at home and at church. But we want them to enjoy that as well. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Just as we've been training these children this week, we believe that the church is about training. One of our primary jobs is to train people in how to know God, how to walk with God, how to enjoy God. And Paul, as he is bringing this letter along, has some specific things to Timothy as the pastor in helping the church return to the basics, the, the church's training program. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, stand with me, and let's read verses 6 through 10 this morning. If you put these things before the brothers... You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have set our we have we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. You may be seated. Join with me as we pray. Father, we are grateful that we can again on this day of yours, this day, this Sunday open up your word. We're so grateful that you inspired it to be written down so that we could be equipped to do the work that you've put us here on earth to do. And so as we look at this text this morning, speak to us. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Vince Lombardi started coaching the Green Bay Packers in 1959. There are just a few of you out here who will, who will maybe remember when he took that mantle up. He had been an offensive coordinator for the New York, New York Giants for a few years and moved into that head coaching spot. And the Packers were not a very good team. They had really struggled. As he began to coach them, they turned it around. And in his first year, they went to the championship but lost. And so they had a long time to think about that before the next training camp began. But when Vince Lombardi walked in that training camp that very next, next year, here was a man who had been in football really all of his life. 
Here was a man walking in with 36 professional athletes who had grown up playing football, high school, college, and now many years in the NFL. And when he walked in that particular Sunday, he took out a ball and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. Now, I'm not too sure how many of them were offended. I think they probably had enough respect for him that they weren't offended by that. But what he was communicating, what he went on to communicate is this year we're going to learn how to block, we're going to learn how to tackle, we're going to learn how to throw, we're going to learn how to catch, we're going to get back to the fundamentals of the game. Interestingly, that year that he started the season with, gentlemen, this is a football, they went to the championship and they also won it. Now, that was the first of five that Lombardi led them, national championships that they won with that team. I know it sounds a little bit basic, but church family, this is a Bible. You're the church, and we're about making disciples. It's pretty simple, isn't it? This is a Bible, we're the church, and we're to be about making disciples, What does that now look like for us? I mean, that's our basic assignment. To do anything less is for us to miss the mark, for us to be off course, for us to be disappointing to our God in what he has asked us to do. Will Mancini in his book Future Church said this, the church in North America is dramatically over-programmed and under-discipled. Many churches across our nation draw a crowd, put quite a performance on, dynamic speakers, entertain, programs that are top-notch, well done. And I'm not saying all of that is bad. I'm saying if we're not careful, though, we can be so over-programmed that we're not really doing the work that God gave us to do. Over-programmed, under-discipled. As Paul was writing Timothy, there are a couple of things he's communicating in chapter 4. He's helping him to step up in what he's been called to do at the church of Ephesus. He's personally challenging him. And part of really the rest of this chapter 4 is about what it means for him to be an effective pastor in that church. We know that pastors are to be about feeding, equipping, and protecting the flock. Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul wrote the church at Ephesus, he said, And God gave some to be pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's, that's what we're to be about, leading and feeding, equipping and protecting to make sure that God's church is doing the work that he put us here on earth to do and is ready one day for his return. So if we're going to be about our business, there is a training program that we are to be about. Look with me again in verse 6. Our first point this morning is the training program must have the right content. If you put these things before the brothers, Paul said, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, think with me here. He's telling Timothy he's been trained in what he should know. 
The words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Not only has Timothy been trained in these things, but he's to be training the others. He's to be taking what he's learned and he's to be passing it along. That's part of the process from generation to one generation in the church. It keeps us moving. It keeps us growing. It keeps us reproducing so that we continue that line that Jesus started when he trained his disciples and it's passed down until Jesus comes back. And so what do we do? We train our members to be good students of the scriptures. Do you see that? When, when uh, Paul told Timothy being trained in the words of the faith, there are a few ways that we're trained in the scriptures and the words of the faith is part of that. It's the parts of scripture. It's, it's the words that make up the sentences, that make up the paragraphs, that make up the chapters, that make up the books of the Bible. It's the words of faith. We're to be diligently reading and studying and learning these words of faith, these parts so that we can better understand the whole. It's not enough for us to just hear and just take away what we're being taught in a classroom or in a worship service like like this. It's good, but we're to be trained in these words on a daily basis. Trained is nourished built up. We're conditioned in a certain kind of way. It's interesting because the world, it seems, is always trying to condition us into its way of thinking. Paul in the church of Rome, he said, do not be conformed, conditioned. Do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are we transformed? It's these words of faith that are living and active This sword, this hammer, this fire that God produces through His Word as we spend time in it. We're to train members to be good students of the Scriptures. They're they're trained in the words of faith, the text of Scripture. It's the daily bread that we live by. It's what we should be meditating on day and night. We're to be saturated in the words of faith. But he also says, and of the good doctrine... Now think about doctrine for a minute. That's our theology. We have the words of faith, the the words of Scripture, the books of Scripture, but we also have the doctrine that when we look at all of Scripture and take it all into context, this is what it says about these areas. That's how we know who God is, Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have good doctrine because we take all of Scripture into account. How do we know about salvation? Well, we take all of the Scripture... The Bible is a book about God bringing salvation to us. And we look at all the scripture passages in context and bring a doctrine of salvation together. How do we know what the church is? Well, we take all of scripture. How do we know what prayer is? We take all of scripture in its context. We have good doctrine. So we have the parts, the text of scripture, and then we have the summary or a theology of scripture. But there's one more thing that I think we can take away from verse 6, and that's, that's not only the text and the theology of Scripture, but the trouble with Scripture, and that is that some people can misinterpret it and, and twist it and distort it. And that's what the first part of verse 6 is communicating. If you put these things, that is, the false teachers and their source 
of where they're getting their ideas from. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. See, being trained, we can identify that. We know the parts of Scripture and the summary of Scripture, the text and the theology. So when trouble comes along, we can identify it and know that is not consistent with the Word of God. That is not what God said. And so therefore, we reject that. As a matter of fact, if somebody's going to teach that, we're going to speak to them and correct them so that we can bring them back in line with what the Word of God does say. And Paul said, put these things before the brothers. Now, how would Timothy put them before the brother, before the brothers? Well, I think in some ways it goes back to the kind of temperament that an elder, a pastor, an overseer would have. When I read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, those first seven verses, notice a couple of the, of the dispositional characteristics that are given. He, for, at the end of verse 2, it says, able to teach. But then it says, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes churches can be viewed as mean-spirited and ugly. and That's not the way we want to communicate to the world who we are. Jesus was gentle. Now, there were times when he wasn't gentle, but you know where he was most not gentle? It was among the religious leaders. It was in the temple, and it was sometimes when he was out with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But with people who were lost, here you have this Savior who is gentle and is giving an offer to them of salvation. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. I think these are qualities that we want to make sure are, are part of our leaders, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes people can take a word or a phrase and it's almost like a gotcha moment. And it's, it's like they're seeking to find something wrong and present some kind of quarrel or point something out. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't be discerning and we shouldn't think through things. But there, there's a difference between that and being quarrelsome. Nor lover of money. And of course, you can continue on reading that. But I, I want you to see that's how Timothy was to carry himself. And that's how he was to point these things out. And if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Can you imagine in a home where this kind of thing is happening? Parents who are teaching their kids how to get in the word, to read the parts, so they can understand the whole. We, we talk in terms of kids learning to read in that first grade level and third grade, they're able to read a little bit more. And parents, I, I can't tell you how important that is to help your kids to start learning to spend time. Now, they may not be reading whole chapters and uh, reading through their Bible in a year by third grade, but they can start reading verses and paragraphs and start putting pieces together of a whole book over a period of time. And if we can help them to start learning the scriptures and then start studying where they have sound doctrine, maybe even through catechism, where we're helping them to, who is God? He's the creator of the world. Why did he create, and, and who created you? God did. Why did he create you? To love him, and to know him, and to enjoy him. We want to help them think through sound doctrine, so that as they grow up, then they're able to even defend sound doctrine. 
It's what God means for us to do in our homes. It's what God means for us to do in a church family. And Paul is pointing this out, that that's what he's done with Timothy. And, of course, that's part of Timothy's job as he's pastoring this church. Train members to be good students of the Scriptures. Well, there's another thing I think we can point out from verse 6, and that is we should train members to be good servants of Jesus Christ. I love that phrase and that description that Paul is giving Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Wouldn't that be good to be known as that? If somebody says, you see that that man over there? He is a good servant of Christ Jesus. You see that woman over there? She is a good servant. That boy, that that student, that girl... He or she is a good servant of Jesus Christ. One day, it's not only going to be that somebody like Paul could identify that with Timothy or somebody could identify that with you, but we're all going to be identified by Jesus as to whether we've been good servants or not. Have we taken what he's given us and used it for his glory? Have we lived for something beyond ourselves? Have, have we lived our lives in preparation for the next? Hold your place here. Turn back to Matthew 25. There's a, a parable that Jesus gives to demonstrate that there's going to be an accounting one day of whether or not we've served him, whether we've fulfilled the reason that we were put here on earth or whether we've served ourselves. In Matthew 25, notice in verse 21, he first addresses the person who had been given five talents. And of course, he used them well. So verse 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, he had been given a brief time to use what the master had given him. And when the master returned, he evaluated his work. And he said, you've used what I've given you well. You are a good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. Now, there was someone who wasn't given quite as many talents, as many opportunities as the five-talent guy. This is the two-talent person. And notice with me, uh, down in verse 23, this is his evaluation. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy of your master. Now, he didn't say, now, you were given a lot less than this other guy or this other girl. You know, you, he, he just said, you've been faithful with what you've been given. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, some of you might say, I've been given a lot of talent. Some of you may say, I've been given very little talent. But it doesn't matter. God's going to judge you based on what you've been given. Have you been using it for Him or not? Now, there was one who was only given one talent. And he didn't use it well. Notice in verse 26 of Matthew 25, Matthew 25, what was said about him. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. In other words, you should have made the best use of what you've had, but you made excuses. You made rationalizations, justifications. When you stood before the Lord, you wicked, slothful, you wicked, lazy servant. You did not do what you were put here on earth to do. Now, I don't think that's going to be a pretty picture one day when... 
A person who's not lived their lives for Christ stands before God. I, I, I think once we've been redeemed, we will, we will be able to enter into heaven, but there's a, a place where we can live as worldly, carnal Christians, and I think we'll be embarrassed when we stand before God one day. And, and then there's that place where we can take what God's given us and we can grow in it and we can be obedient to Him and we'll be confident when we stand before Him. We'll have a good offering to give Him because we've lived our lives like He intended for us to live it. Now, when you look back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, again, Paul said, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant. That's our goal, to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. It's not to get what I want. It's not to gratify my own life. It's not to live like I want to live. It's to follow Christ. The one who gives up all will gain all. The one who loses his life will gain his life. And I think that's part of what we're getting at here by that title, servant. You'll be a good servant. Now, a good servant will protect the name of his master. And as Paul was writing in the, the uh, pastoral letter of Titus, one of the things, he was teaching the older women to train the younger women. You know, that's, a, that's a part of the assignment, if you're an older woman, to teach the younger women how to live their lives. And you get it in Titus 2 and verses 3 and four and five. Now, one of the reasons that older women carry out that assignment, it says at the end of verse five, that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, that God will not be disrespected. What he has told us to do, we're living it out. We're not just saying I'm a Christian, we're living it out. We're doing what he's called us to do. We're not letting people say, well, you say you're a Christian, that must not be very effective. That must not uh, make much of a difference in your life because you're living just like the world. And so we want to be good servants. We want to protect his name. God doesn't need me to protect his name, but he's called me to be a light. He's called you to be a light. He's called you not to dishonor his name, but to honor his name with the people around you. And of course, it allows us to protect this flock. We're, we're to be interested in his flock, the church, because he is. And one of the things he tells leaders in Titus, again, another pastoral letter, verse 9, when he talks about uh, an elder, an overseer, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We're protecting the flock as we are good servants of his, as we're learning, as we're studying as we're defending the faith, as we see in verse 6, we're being good servants. We're carrying out the work of God, honoring the name of God, and protecting the people of God. The church must train its members with the right content. And of course, that's the Word of God. Now, this training program that Paul is talking about also includes character. Their training program must aim for the right character. Notice with me in verse 7 of 1 Timothy 4. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There is a lot in our world that can distract us from doing the things of God. I like what one person said. There's a pretty easy decision between heaven and hell. I mean, I think if I took a vote today, how many of you want to go to heaven? How many of you want to go to hell? I, I think we'd probably get a majority vote. Uh, I, I would like to think we'd get 100% uh, on that. It's, it's an easy vote, right? Heaven or hell, when we really think about it. 
But now, what about heaven and earth? How many want to live for heaven and how many want to live for earth? Now, I think probably most people would say, I want to live for heaven and not for earth. But practically speaking, it's a little tougher decision, isn't it? The world has a lot of pull. There are a lot of things in the world. There, 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 there's a lot that would draw us to the things of the world, and it's not easy to say no to the things of the world. You know, when you say, when you say yes to God and you say no to the world, it's very painful. And, and so that's why Jesus oftentimes references death in there. You, you die to yourself. You take up your cross, you're willing to go to the death, you deny yourself and you follow Christ, and that, that costs you your life. When Jesus described following him, this big crowd that was around him, there were a lot of people that turned the other way and walked away. You see, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't looking to have a huge crowd He was looking for disciples, people who would follow him because he knew they would make a difference in the world. If you had to make a decision, do you want want a a church of 20,000 or do you want 20 people who are disciples, who are following Christ, who are making disciples? You've got to see the difference here. There's a difference in a church that's being trained to make disciples and the impact long term that you're doing what not only Jesus modeled, you're doing what he taught and you're doing what he commanded us to do as a church. And that's where true growth begins. Making disciples. So in this whole idea of character... Put your priorities where they need to be. Know what is true and what is not true. Live for heaven and not not hell for sure, but live for heaven and not the earth and not the world. Live for heaven, live for God. Train yourself for godliness. So a few expectations I want you to get rid of this morning. The first one is don't expect someone else to feed you all the time. Now, I think you should gather with the church because the Bible commands it. Let us not forsake the gathering of believers. Don't forsake the gathering. We're we're to be here. Uh, The Bible clearly tells us that in Hebrews chapter 10. And we should be fed. The Word of God should be taught and preached and explained and applied. It should be. But don't expect Sunday to get one meal that's going to last you all week. I don't think any of you would live like that physically. I'm going to eat one big meal on Sunday and then I'll be okay the rest of the week. No, we eat every day. Spiritually, you need it more than you need it physically. Train yourself for godliness. Don't don't expect someone else to feed you all the time. I I remember in high school, one of my best friends, we we had... uh, uh, a class period where we were a teacher's assistant. So we would, we would go in, and we didn't do a lot of assisting. But we would go in the back room, and we'd eat our lunch. And so his mom always cut up apples. You know? So I, I had my peanut butter and jelly every, every day. And, and his mom, she would cut up apples, and she knew that we were friends, and she would cut up enough for both of us. And there was one day I remember she had cut them up, and we noticed that there was a good bit of the core left on that apple and we started talking about, you know, it would be nice if your mom would cut that core off too. 
And he went home and he told her that. <laughs> and I, I remember his response when he came back. He said, well, mom asked, did, did I want her, did we want her to chew up those apples for us too? <laughs> Don't expect somebody to feed. You know, we would think that was, that was not right. There's something wrong if a child, if, if by the age of five and six, we were still spoon feeding those kids. You, you, you've got to start learning how to feed yourself. And some of you kids, you need to start feeding yourself. You don't need to ask your mom to keep feeding you any longer. But we would say there's something wrong there. They've got to learn there to take responsibility and start feeding themselves. And I wonder how many people have been saved for years and have never learned how to get in the Word, never developed the discipline to read the Bible, and never understood sound doctrine before. And God is thinking, when are we going to grow up? Don't expect someone else to feed you all the time. Train yourself. Secondly, don't expect someone else to do what you're supposed to do for yourself. Nobody else can develop discipline for you. You've got to set aside that time. You've got to get up. You've got to know when it's time to go to bed. You've got to spend time and open up this book and learn how to read it. Discipline, perseverance on those days when when it doesn't feel good and you don't really want to read. How do you develop that kind of perseverance? to keep on reading and the kind of accountability that comes with that, that uh, others can ask us about our reading, perseverance, and then obedience. Train yourself for godliness that you would be obedient to God, living out the truths, not just reading them, not just knowing them, but living them out and obeying God. Don't expect somebody else to do what you're supposed to do for yourself. Thirdly, don't expect benefits of godliness only in the next life. Notice that in verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness, living like, like God intended, living knowing that not only God is with you, but one day He will evaluate you, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You see, there are benefits right now. If, if you've never really gotten into the Word and started learning and growing and serving and obeying and using what God's given you, you have no idea what it's like to live a fruitful life yet. I'm telling you, when you begin to see God work in you and make you more like Christ and you begin to see God use you to touch other people's lives and to begin to make disciples, it's one of the great joys that God gives us to live here on earth. We're we're fulfilling the purpose that he gave us. And so there is benefit in this life for godliness. Don't just expect it all in heaven. Right now, God wants to use you. Even as you learn how to obey him, you're learning how to love him more. The more you love him, the more you want to obey him. The more time you spend with him, you're growing and you're understanding his love and it overwhelms you so that you want to be obedient. We're not talking about just a legalism. Again, check the box. I read my Bible today. The goal is to to grow closer to God, to understand Him more, to grow in this relationship. And the more you obey Him and grow in your relationship, the more you love Him and the more you want to obey Him. And you love your neighbor better. 
when you're growing in godliness. You have compassion for people. You're less judgmental of others because you know you come short and you don't always live it out perfectly. You love your neighbor better when you're growing in godliness. You're able to share truth with your neighbor in a more effective way because you're learning more about who God is and what he expects. So don't expect benefits of godliness only in the next life. There are benefits right now. And then fourthly, don't expect benefits only in this life. There's a a promise for the life to come. You you saw that at the end of verse 8. Also, it, it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This life is a very brief time. Remember, average life expectancy, 80 Ish, half time, you know, 40. What quarter are you in? Most of us are a lot further on than we could have ever imagined at this point, right? This is just a, a preparation for the next. God's given us this opportunity to enter into this relationship with Himself. He created a perfect world. We failed. Adam and Eve failed. Sin passed upon all people. God had a plan all along to restore people to Himself. And He sent His Son who would die for our sin. He would come and He would provide an opportunity for us to be restored to God through His death and through His resurrection. Those who confess Jesus as Lord and place their faith in His death and resurrection, they're adopted into His family. They're made right with Him. They're they're prepared now to be with Him. And the rest of their life on earth is growing in that relationship so that they can be faithful servants until He comes back. So for us, we're, we're living for the next life. We're doing all we can in this life so that we're ready for the next life. We're, we're ready only because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, we want to do all we can to help others get ready for when He does return. I think sometimes we get this idea that I just want to live in my own little bubble. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be inconvenienced. You know, in Vacation Bible School, I, I was challenged again to, to make sure I'm not just doing what's comfortable. So in each one of the worship services, you know, I start by, okay, I'll, I'll learn this motion. I'll learn that motion. That's very uncomfortable for me. When, when uh, the staff was watching the video, you know, you watch video to get better. Uh, we don't really watch video to get better here. But we were watching, as I watched the video, I thought, you know, one of the things that we've got to work on in staff are these moves. We're, we're bad. We're bad. But there are a lot of things that make, us un- that make us feel comfortable. It might not be moves with a song and motions with a song, but it may be being nice to my neighbor and inviting them over for a meal. It may be just stopping for a moment in the driveway and speaking. May- maybe, you know, it'd be nice just to run on into the house, not say anything to anybody. I mean, I, I mean I, we, we've been working all day, right? So why do I want to take a couple of minutes for that? It may, be, it may be tough to think about getting out of my bubble and building a relationship with someone at work that I'm going to share the gospel with. Or, or maybe teaching a children's class. Or maybe teaching a special needs class. Or working in some kind of ministry in the church. And because we're afraid to take risk and get out of our comfort zone, we were robbed of what God really wants to do in us and through us and the glory that He would get 
because of the work he would do in us. I think it's when we get out of our comfort zone that it takes the most faith, doesn't it? When we take risk. Because for me, I, I like to live life measured. I'm thinking always, before I get somewhere, how am I going to approach this where I don't feel awkward? You know, maybe some of you are like that. You're, you're processing it. You live a measured life. If something comes out of your mouth, many of you, not all of you, many of you, you're, you're all, you've already thought it through. You know what it's going to sound like when it comes out. You're living a measured life. And there's nothing, excuse me, there's nothing wrong with living a measured life, but there's some risk in life too that when you take that step, you might get rejected. Somebody might not like you. They might not like your accent. You know, you may be from the south, or you may be from the north, or you may be from somewhere else in the world. You're taking risk. But if you only do what you're able to do, whatever you can figure out and calculate and get done yourself, when it's done, you know who gets the credit for that? You do. Because you did what you could do. But when you step out of your comfort zone and you do something that's bigger than you, and that looking back on it, you know what people say? That had to be God. That wasn't you. It's getting out of our comfort zone. It's taking risk. It's willing to do something that, you know, I can't figure it all out mathematically. I can't figure it all out on my agenda. It doesn't quite fit my calendar like I was planning it. But that's when God does what only He can do. That's when God shows up. Now, God's always with us. But there are times when it becomes evident that God's at work. And usually those are the times we take risk and step out of our comfort zone and do something that we know God, only, only if you're at work here is anything good going to come out of this. Godliness holds value for the life to come. It's worth taking risk over. Now, this is one of those places in Timothy, 1 Timothy, there are three places we get this trustworthy saying that is phrased in verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Some say this refer back, refers back up to verse 8. Some say it refers down to verse 10. I am of the opinion that it goes back up to verse 8 because verse 8 sounds a lot more proverbial, like a saying that might be communicated regularly in the church family. So we're going to do it this statement like we have our others, except we're going to do it in reverse order. So you're going to say the first part, and I'll help you get started, and then I will say what's in the parenthesis, and then we'll do our review as well with this particular verse. And so that should come up. It is up. Thank you. You're doing your job back there, Susan. So let's start this. I'll start with you. Godliness. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now let's do that one more time, church. Godliness For the life to come. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now remember, it was in chapter 1, verse 15, we picked up our first saying. So let's, let's go to that. I, I've got the parenthesis part down. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Man, this is a great class. You guys. Okay, and then in chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. Excellent. Thank you for participating and for being such a good class. Look with me again back in the text. Verse 10. For to this end we toll and strive. This was no little matter for Paul. He had given his life for this. He was willing to be beaten. He was willing to to be imprisoned. He was willing to give his life because there was something much greater than this life on earth. For this end we toll and and strive. We labor, we sweat, blood, sweat, and tears because we have our hope set on the living God. So that's your fifth expectation to put down. Don't expect the people around you to be your Savior. Only God is your Savior. He is the only one who will be able to help you live life and be ready for the life to come. He is the only Savior. Your spouse is not your Savior. All that you expect out of your spouse, all that you expect out of your kids, they will never save you. They'll never give you what you really need. All that you expect even out of your church family and your pastors will never be able to give you all that you need. But we do know what you need. And that's God. And he tells Timothy, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. God is alive. God is at work. God is around you. God is drawing you to himself. God is growing you. And he is the savior of all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is only one savior And he is adequate for anyone in this world. He came to seek and to save the lost. God loves people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But who experiences that salvation? Those who believe. Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a part of his family. And God begins this this good work in you. God starts this good work of changing you. He changes your heart. He gives you his spirit. And he starts this this work of making you more like Christ. And you have this promise that, that the one who starts this good work in you, our Vacation Bible School students, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We've set our hope on him. It's why many of you have been, been willing to make sacrifices, even, even in difficult days of COVID and trying to figure out how to regather and trying to, ha- trying to figure out how to be united together as one family, trying to be intergenerational. Many of you have made sacrifices and, and you've been so gracious and generous and said, we, we want to try to be the church that God has created us to be and God has commanded us to be. You've made sacrifices Because you realize there's only one Savior. And that's who we're trying to make known. 
You want to honor him. You want his body to be united. You want to see his work accomplished. You want to see his word learned and studied and defended. Not just by this generation, but generations to come. He gave all for us. We give all for him. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. You are the church. Make disciples. Father, we thank you for a church family that we can come and worship you together with. You commanded us, these people obeyed today. And I pray that as we come to this part of our service, that your spirit would draw us to yourself. Convict us of any sin before we observe your supper, before we take communion, Lord, Search our hearts even now, our words, our actions, our attitudes. If there's any wicked way in any one of us today, I pray that you will convict us and bring us to a point of repentance even now. And I pray that as we surrender ourselves to you this morning, that you'll do such a work in us that there's only one thing the world can say. Surely, surely God is in that place. Surely God is working in those people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.